Welcome to World Policy on Air, a weekly podcast from the pages and website of World Policy Journal, published by the nonprofit World Policy Institute in New York. I'm David Alpern. On this week's show, premiering February 13th, 2015, we'll be speaking with World Policy Institute senior fellow Nina Khrushcheva, granddaughter of former Soviet leader Nikita Khrushchev, about Putin, power, and Europe. A Russian expert at the New School University in New York, she'll comment on the article Russia Throws Down the Gauntlet in the winter 2015 edition of the journal. We'll also point out other top stories in the issue. But first, some timely insights from Washington with Paul Brandis, who runs the website West Wing Reports. Well, matters of war and peace dominating the White House agenda this week with President Obama seeking the former against the so-called Islamic State, but the latter in Ukraine. On ISIS, Mr. Obama is seeking a formal congressional okay on the use of force against the terror group. A letter sent to lawmakers calls for continued reliance on air power, but also limited ground operations by American forces. The White House proposal is seen as a compromise of sorts between Republican hawks who favor a more robust effort against ISIS and Democrats who, like Obama himself, are more leery about getting drawn further into yet another conflict in the Middle East. ISIS, meantime, is now blamed for the death of a fourth American hostage, Kayla Jean Mueller, a 26-year-old humanitarian worker who was captured in Syria two years ago. As for Ukraine, where fighting rages between Ukrainian forces and Russian-backed separatists, the president continues to resist calls by conservatives to send lethal aid to Kiev, But Obama is keeping the door open as he monitors peace talks between Russia, Ukraine, France, and Germany. Those talks began Wednesday with a frosty handshake between Russian President Vladimir Putin and Ukraine's Petro Poroshenko. Obama carefully avoided saying just what it would take to arm Ukraine. His caution has been echoed by German Chancellor Angela Merkel. The two met here at the White House on Monday, saying that sending weapons to Ukraine merely plays into the Kremlin's hands. The president even conceded that if Russia wanted to take Ukraine, it could probably do so, a comment swiftly derided by critics as weak and conciliatory. Last but hardly least, it appears as if the looming deadline for this latest round of nuclear talks with Iran will be the last. Obama says there is probably no need for any further extension. He says it is once and for all up to Tehran to make a decision about whether it truly seeks a final agreement with the so-called P5 plus one group or not. The P5 plus one, by the way, includes the Russians. The president went out of his way to say Moscow's help on Iran has been useful. For World Policy On Air, I'm Paul Brandis at the White House. You're listening to World Policy On Air. Now this. Sometimes I think to myself, maybe our bear needs to sit quietly, eat his berries and honey. Maybe he'll just be left alone. No. They will always be trying to put him on a chain. And as soon as they do that, they will tear out his teeth and claws. Russia's President Vladimir Putin, at his marathon year-end media event, yet again suggested that Russian-backed military operations across the border in Ukraine were only part of a predictable defense against European expansion eastward, economic and political. Billionaire Hungarian refugee George Soros, by predictable contrast, 
says Putin is challenging the very existence of an indecisive Europe. His regime, quote, in some ways superior to the European Union, more flexible and constantly springing surprises. The Russian strategy put pressure on President Obama to better arm Ukraine's troops, despite German and French warnings of even more deadly escalation. But could the very strengths of Putin's regime hold the seeds of its ultimate weakness? And could the perceived weakness of the EU hold a secret to its survival? So concludes Russian journalist Andrei Babitsky in the new issue of the World Policy Journal in an article headlined, Russia Throws Down the Gauntlet. To comment on those conclusions, we're pleased to have another frequent WPJ contributor, Dr. Nina Khrushcheva, Associate Dean and Associate Professor of International Affairs at the New School University in New York, also a senior fellow at the World Policy Institute. Raised as the granddaughter of the late Soviet Premier Nikita Khrushchev, she wrote The Lost Khrushchev, A Journey into the Gulag of the Russian Mind from Tate Publishers. I spoke with her earlier. Professor Khrushcheva, welcome to World Policy on Air. Thank you very much. Babitsky begins with signs of weakness in the EU, specifically relating to Ukraine. He notes that Hungary, Slovakia, and the Czech Republic did not join Paris and Berlin in strong support of Kiev's cause, and he questioned the cohesiveness of a union whose members closest to Ukraine, both in terms of geography and political history, seem to side more with Putin. Were you surprised by that reaction from former Soviet satellites? I wasn't, because uh, we know that this is uh, um, almost 30 countries in the Union, and uh, of course they're going to have different ideas of how to deal with their neighbors, how to deal with other countries. Some of them are older Europe, as Donald Rumsfeld uh, used to say, and there is a new Europe, and I think uh, they're expecting them to act in unison is, is probably very delusional. So obviously they would be... Um, dealing with uh, with Russia differently, with Putin differently, but also because of their own leadership. I mean, for example, in Hungary, Viktor Orban uh, is a great admirer of Putin. Uh, there is also, um, you know, Bulgaria that tries to balance out uh, the former, being former very close Soviet satellite and the now uh, being part of the European Union. So the expectation that they're going to speak in one voice, if anybody expected that, would be, were, were very delusional. And I think the strengths of European Union should be or is, is that how they handle those disagreements. Well, is their reaction at that point a continuing problem for Europe in dealing with Putin? I think there is, because uh, there are certain countries like Poland that uh, are very militant almost in their Westernism, and they uh, want to take Russia to task or Putin to task about everything. They uh, thoroughly mistrust the Russians and everything the Russians do, even, you know, you know the time when... Um, some people, at least, were saying that Bayes Yeltsin was more democratic, although, of course, he was anti-communist, not necessarily democratic. And yet Poland was always questioning Russian intentions. And then there is Hungary, and then there is Slovakia, and then there is also uh, not part of the European Union, but there is Serbia that is very, very close to the Russians. So uh, they uh, absolutely would need to um, get some... Uh, coherent coherent voice and uh, uh, some of them would be closer to to Russia than than others and uh, you know then there is Germany of course that kind you know Putin considers his own 
second country because he speaks German uh, so well. So I, I actually don't think that it's a weakness. I think it's a possibility, an opportunity for Europe to discuss how they stand uh, as one voice when uh, somebody so threatening to them or uh, some others say not so threatening to them uh, is encroaching on another European country. What is, uh, what is their policy, so to speak? Can they have a united policy? And I think that should be a conversation. Apart from this ghost of an iron curtain, as Babitsky calls it, he cites a belief widespread in Eastern Europe and beyond that EU weakness also follows from the absence of its own armed forces. Uh, depending principally on negotiations and the rule of law, he says, involves both over-reliance on U.S. might and, quote, a good deal of hypocrisy, quoting Sir Anthony Giddens, uh, the British sociologist. What's your view on the need for a unified European force beyond NATO and the likelihood of necessary agreement on deploying it, given the differing foreign policy agendas of member states? I find it actually very interesting that we are now, I mean, it was such a good thing that Europe didn't have its own armed forces, and now it's, it's, a, it's a lament that, I mean, we're all lamenting that it's not happening. I think one of the reasons Putin is so aggressive is that uh, his fight is really not with Europe. His fight is with the United States. His fight is with uh, this idea that the United States can act um, uh, in a very um, irresponsible way, in a sense that because they're so big and powerful, they can do whatever, argue that, uh, you know, there's a, you know, kind of road to democracy, as uh, the previous administration particularly argued in Afghanistan and Iraq, and we know what happened with that. So for him, that's the fight. And Europe is almost, uh, ironically, was caught in between these two former superpowers. So in this sense, there is a ghost of Iron Curtain. Uh, but Putin's fight originally was not with Europe, although it may have now become uh, a European fight precisely because there are some countries uh, in Europe um, uh, suggest that NATO, NATO should arm and, and uh, um, you know, has its, own, has its own army and whatnot. But I don't really think that the problem of Putin behavior is because Europe doesn't have an army. I think the problem with Putin behavior is much more about Putin not being recognized, or so he feels he's not recognized as uh, the equal partner at the Western table. And that has been Russian response for centuries, is that if you're not going to take my czar as seriously that you're taking, say, the Austro-Hungarian czar, then, uh, or Austro-Hungarian king, then uh, Russia is going to um, act as a spoiler, because that's the only way for Russia to uh, show that it has muscle. And that's what that whole Putin agenda or idea that the military-industrial complex should mean should need to be much, much stronger. So he's using the NATO, NATO card, he's using the army card only as a threatening card. I'm not sure, and actually I agree with Babitsky completely, I don't think there is a real threat, military threat to Europe. However, there is an existential threat to Europe because Putin is not going to allow the West to pretend or to say we are better than you. He's going to catch every single inconsistency and throw it into West's face, first to the United States, and, but now also by default into Europe. Just a brief break here to say this is World Policy On Air. 
Now back to New School Russian expert Nina Khrushcheva. Well, interestingly, as a self-described optimist uh, for the foreseeable future anyway, Babitsky predicts that Moscow will not dominate Europe and that Europe will avoid subjection by any outside power. The most interesting aspect of this essay, I think, is clearly the conclusion that perceived strengths of Putin's Russia are exactly the reason it won't become a dominant player on the continent. In particular, he paints Putin's power as essentially economic, controlling the flow of wealth, especially towards the elites to which he is closest. Is that a correct reading of his leadership? Yes, I agree with him. I mean, I think I think he uses the arms as a leverage. He doesn't really he doesn't really go into the same as the is is the Soviet Union. I and mean, the Soviet Union was very. I mean, the idea that the Soviets are going to go and take over the world was a huge fear. But the Soviets really didn't go and take over the world. They took some parts of the world and argued that the United States did the same thing. So in some ways, there was a certain amount of parity. So I agree that it's not uh, military. Military is really not about the military, but there are two things here that first, Putin needs to feed um, ideology of his own um, military man, because that's the only way he's going to stay in power. As long as the military power on his side, he's going to stay in power. Otherwise, his own generals are going to oust him. So there is a very delicate balance between his financial elites and his military elites. So with financial elites, he's going, he's trying to control those financial uh, flows and expansion, and they keep talking about the sanctions that need to be lifted because Russia is is not a threat to anybody. But at the same time, they need to flex the muscle at least give an appearance of that, because Putin knows that if he betrays his generals and say, well, we are really not going to go militarily, then the generals would get upset and his days in the Kremlin are numbered. So this is a very he – is, he is – by the way, in not in a good position, as, 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 as strong as he may appear to the outsiders. Well, the army, like the elites, has to run on money. Babitsky sees Putin backing off in the Ukraine after costs grew too high because of Western economic sanctions, along with plummeting oil prices. First of all, do you see Russian horns significantly withdrawn uh, in the Ukraine, and for those reasons? Well, to some degree, I mean, they kind of uh, act, uh, come, uh, you know, get away, come closer, so they withdraw and then they go back. Now there's another, I think, 9,000 troops, so 15,000 uh, got back to, um, uh, to to those borders. Uh, as you know, the, the fighting has intensified in, in recent week. I think it's just a week, uh, and I don't think that has done that has been done without the Russians. And I and I do think that every time it happens, probably generals run to Putin's office and say, "Oh my God, we're losing that war. We cannot allow Ukraine to take over those parts." And so, in fact, in territory, territory-wise, the, the the rebels have have expanded. But at the same time, we're hearing um, Sergei Lavrov, the Russian foreign minister, saying, "Well, we need to withdraw to the original September peace agreement." So it is. And in this sense, I would totally agree with George Soros, is that this element of surprise, but also element of confusion, you know, what is it Putin doing? Is he withdrawing or is he staying? If he withdrawing, is he staying? So we cannot quite say that they are withdrawing, but what we can say, that they haven't gone to Kiev and they won't. And in, in this sense, it is almost a positive development, because uh, if you only listen to uh, to the Westerners and, you know, Western analysts and Western publications, Putin's next step is to go into Kiev. And therefore, I really appreciate Babitsky piece, who basically says it's not going to be more than that. However, it's not going to be less than it is now. 
Uh, it's interesting uh, the, the talk about financial power as politics, especially with the elites in the military. It kind of leaves aside the mass of the Russian people. We've talked before about the psychology of Russian leadership and followership, a Russian people so accustomed to hardship and addicted, as you've, I think, written uh, to the fantasy as their escape, that a showman like Putin can retain popular control as well as the elites in the military. What's your thoughts on that? Well, and I, I also appreciate uh, Babitsky's sort of this dilemma is that, yes, on one hand, uh, in the last 20 plus years, almost 25 years, we've gotten used to being able to travel. I mean, Russians, we, I, mean, I live in New York, so, but Russians got used to traveling, they got used to cashmere, they got used to good shoes and leafy greens, uh, so that's, that's very important, and whether they are going to give it up for, just for the national greatness the way they used to is a question, because the Russians have never lived like that. They live under Putin, they did live better than they've ever lived before. Uh, uh, the middle class was um, very, very prosperous. So the question is whether they're going to be li- they're going to be willing to give up uh, their um, vacations in Antalya and going to Paris and uh, um, take up Russian greatness as a as a greater reward and sort of be in the Stalinesque mode. Is that we're going to industrialize and we're going to show them all, but we have to suffer for that. I have to say I agree with Babitsky that probably those Russians who were willing to give up their uh, individual life for the national greatness may not necessarily be there. I mean, the sanctions are already biting tremendously. All prices are going, as, as we all know, going down. And the Russians are getting incredibly disillusioned. And if you look at the numbers, of course, they show 85% of, of support. But it also, you, one has to look very careful at, at those questions. And, you know, if somebody, in, there's a questionnaire of uh, whether you see Putin as uh, next president, and only over 30% say that they would like to see Putin as next president. So it's very interesting and, and conflicting, uh, uh, conflicting rationale. So that said, uh, of course, it is possible that uh, you know Russians go back to the, this idea of suffering versus the, uh, the great nation. But I don't think we can answer. We can answer um, uh, very. We can only answer reflectively to these questions. We cannot definitively decide uh, what's uh, what's what's in store for for the Russians in this. They can either suffer, or they can say, you know what, enough is enough. It has been centuries. We don't want to do it anymore. On the other side of the equation, Babitsky says perceived weaknesses of Europe are exactly the reason it will survive. Uh, he argues that the EU was not conceived as an economic entity or an efficient vehicle for coordinated action, but rather as a bureaucratic defense against the resurgence of conflict among historic enemies, a, a safety net whose inefficiency is its main virtue. What do you think of that? So you mean Russia will survive because of European inefficiency or, or the, Europe? The EU will survive because of the inefficiency and the the lack of armed forces, the lack of unity and efficiency. Oh, I agree with that. That I agree with. I think it will survive. I think it will actually add more countries because as weak as it is perceived to be, uh, people do want to be in Europe. I mean, you know, look at Serbia. I think Serbia is a really good example because on one hand it's just, you know, loves Russia more than life itself. On the other hand, it's, its road is, into your, road is into European Union. So I absolutely agree that it, it would survive. It probably would restructure better, maybe make a better, better bureaucracy. And it's, it's rather a new entity also, so it probably needs to give it some time for them all 
of them to come to the same page because some countries are 100 years old being in Europe and some countries are, you know, barely 25. Before we end, tell us about your new school panel on dictatorial leadership on uh, February 18th. Oh, thank you for asking. Um, well, I'm doing an exhibition in, in, in Parsons at the New School on uh, Romancing True Power, uh, D20, and D20 is modeled on G20, the group of most industrialized nations. We call it Dictator 20, D-I-C-K 20, uh, Dick Power, so the power of a strong man, the alpha man personality, and we have uh, 20 dicks, as we call them, uh, that we include in the exhibition, uh, and they range because they're not arranged by, you know, how uh, the how how many you know how much they oppress, but what their topology. And so Dick Cheney is one of the very prominent examples in this. Not necessarily because he would comp- be compared to Joseph Stalin. Of course, he couldn't be. Not as a dictator in in regular sense of the word, but his typology, if we're not in American democracy, he would be a total dick. He would have had a golden palace, a mausoleum, and whatnot. And uh, Bobby Gosh, who is a used to be a, a world affairs uh, journalist correspondent um, uh, world affairs reporter for time magazine now he he has his own publication he's an analyst for uh, time magazine and he's coming to talk about this sort of the uh, the radicalization of world politics and it came out because he and I talked about my exhibition and he said well I'm completely obsessed with this uh, with this churn of world leadership that everybody now wants to be a Authoritarian. We really see it in politics. Uh, you know, we see it in China. We see it in India. We see it in Europe. We see Viktor Orban, whom I mentioned, who is also one of our dicks. Uh, we see uh, the, you know, Silvio Berlusconi is no longer in Italy, and yet a lot of Italy still loves him precisely because um, he was uh, this kind of um, uh, alpha personality, autocratic leader, and whatnot. So this is something that we are going to talk about. So we have the typology and trappings, and we also uh, want to engage our audience so the audience comes in and they pick their own dicks. That is, they pick their own dictator. We provide them with uh, with a list of those that could be, uh, could be their favorites. Fascinating. Dr. Khrushcheva, thank you. Thank you very much. Nina Khrushcheva is Associate Dean and Associate Professor of International Affairs at the New School University in New York, also a senior fellow at the World Policy Institute. Her recent book is The Lost Khrushchev, A Journey into the Gulag of the Russian Mind. And on Wednesday, February 18th, she's on a Parsons New School panel on romancing true power, focused on dictatorial leadership. She talked with us earlier about the article, Russia Throws Down the Gauntlet, by Russian journalist Andrei Babitsky in the current issue of World Policy Journal. Also featured in the current issue of World Policy Journal, you'll find articles on a captive in deadly Crimea, on the melancholy of Hong Kong, and the new polarized voting patterns of Europe. Plus, tune into next week's podcast as we talk about the Greek elections, psychological factors, and fallout with financial analyst Peter Atwater, author of the book Moods and Markets, and a WPJ blog post headlined, The Series of Triumph. World Policy on Air is a production of World Policy Journal at the nonprofit World Policy Institute in New York. Editor-publisher David Andelman, managing editor Yaffa Frederick, online news editor and podcast producer Matthew DeMello. I'm David Alpern. Thank you.